Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young, and I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Picard and Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry, with 115 lawyers and 10 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. The attorney-client privilege is the oldest of the privileges for confidential communications, and as the U.S. Supreme Court noted as far back as 1888, an attorney's assistance can only safely and readily be used when that attorney's assistance is free from the consequences or the apprehension of disclosure. So as litigators, we spend a lot of time thinking about how to ensure protection of the privilege, reviewing emails and other documents for privilege issues, asserting objections during discovery and at trial, and preparing privilege logs. But is there a better way to control these costs and still ensure that communications with our clients are protected? Well, there's perhaps no one better to talk to about these issues than Edna Epstein, famed author of The Attorney-Client Privilege and the Work Product Doctrine, a two-volume treatise that is the go-to reference by attorneys and judges nationwide on common issues that arise in the attorney-client privilege and work product protection context. Ms. Epstein started her legal career as a Cook County Assistant State's Attorney, where she headed one of the first sex felony task forces. She then spent over 13 years at Sidley Austin, where she was a litigator focusing on financial fraud cases before founding her own law firm. Ms. Epstein is a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School and received her Ph.D. in Romance Languages and Literature from Harvard University. Welcome to the show, Edna. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, you are well known um, for being an author and expert in the areas of attorney-client privilege and the work product doctrine. So I was surprised to learn that you have degrees in French literature and history, including a PhD from Harvard on those subjects. So I'm curious as to what drew you to that line of courses. The federal government was giving out a lot of fellowships if you went on for a PhD. I briefly thought of law at a time very, very few women went into law. But with the inducement of getting all of my graduate work done on the government's payroll, as it were, through a fellowship, I went that route, which was always in the offing for me in terms of interest and didn't look back until 10 years later. Well, and and I sort of interested in sort of the, the course correction, because I noticed that you also uh, taught for a couple of years at UIC before going to law school. So how did you make that decision, you know, to go into being a professor and then end up going to law school afterwards? Well, first and foremost, maybe it was the fact that it was the end of the 1960s, 1968. And the turmoil in the country today maybe mirrors, maybe is worse, different than it was in the late 60s. People like uh, Kennedy, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Kent State Massacre. It really made me rethink a more practical, more politically involved career. And that's what really did it in part. In part, it was also, I just couldn't see spending 35 years of the rest of my life saying the same things about the same texts to people who are often first generation from Eastern Europe and didn't really even know English literature all that well. It just seemed 
not very relevant at the time. Interesting. So a couple of things you mentioned, I'll follow up on. Uh, you mentioned that you know, in the, in the late 60s, not a lot of women were going into law school. Interested to hear about your experience going to University of Chicago. How many women were in your class? How did you feel as, as a, a woman going to law school during that time? Um, I don't even know where to begin. I always thought that we were only 10 women in my class of about 150. I went back and actually counted us in the yearbook, and we were, I think, 25. But it was like overnight, the dean of admissions said he couldn't believe it. All of a sudden, women were beginning to apply to law school. There were very few of us. Most of them were quite quiet in class since I had been a university professor myself. <laughs> I was not shy. Uh, I think the biggest difference was that I was not only married, but I had two children and then had a third one while I was in law school. So that made me quite different as a person from a lot of my fellow grad students. We were very close and I've still remained almost like a sibling to many of them. Wonderful experience for me, just wonderful. That's great. I can relate in terms of having a child. My first child was born soon before I started law school. So I can understand having, you know, little kids going to law school. And it is quite different from, you know, most of your colleagues in law school. Well, you have to be very disciplined. You, you simply cannot sit around and moan about the courses endlessly. You've got to get to it, get the work done, and cook dinner. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. I, I, I had my wife to help me uh, quite a bit in, in that arena. So, And also interested in sort of, uh, you know, you kind of made the connection between the civil rights movement and sort of what we're, we're dealing with now and, and kind of, you know, what the role of of litigators uh, specifically might be and what did you see back then in terms of you know how litigators and lawyers got involved and where do you see the role of lawyers playing in the current scenario oh my well you know we lawyers like to think we're terribly important in terms of test cases and in many ways we are i think we're certainly more politically involved than most other professions are certainly far more than doctors or accountants. It goes with the territory. It always has in American history, maybe much less in Europe, uh, maybe. But certainly in America, lawyers and politics and involvement in the political discourse has always gone hand in hand. Certainly the death of Fred Hampton. I don't know if you know that name. Black Panthers. It was a, really a police execution conducted by the then state's attorney, Hanrahan, and uh, the result was that Hanrahan was voted out of office. And we got our first uh, Republican state's attorney in Cook County in Chicago in many, many decades. Somebody who wasn't part of the daily machine. But I remember as a professor, the Hampton apartment was right near the UIC campus in Chicago. And I went to see it before it was cordoned off. And it was, I still can see it if I close my eyes. The wall was Swiss cheese. The mattress was blood soaked. And it was nothing but a police execution. And I, I think that was also one of the things that sort of propelled me into law. Well, and actually, then you went 
directly into the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. Yes. And so I, tell me about, so did the change of administration uh, lead you into uh, going into that role or is that cr- criminal so. law? Yeah, Very go ahead. Much. I don't know how many people know how much uh, Chicago was still run by Old Man Daly, as he was called. It was very much a patronage system. You didn't get a job in the state's attorney's office at that time, unless you were sponsored by some political alderman. That was not at all my political inclination, so I never would have managed to get sponsored in that way. The other thing too is that U of C was much more, what shall I call it, much more sort of an intellectual in its approach and very few graduates of the U of C went to something like the state's attorney's office. They were supposed to go clerk for judges and go to the big firms and things like that instead. So uh, yes, there were five of us from my class who got jobs with the Republican who had been elected Bernie Carey. So the, the times really propelled many of us in that direction, which I thought would be and turned out to be an incredible education in politics and how the city of Chicago worked. Um, because initially I was on the civil side representing all of the county agencies and then wanted to get on the criminal side to have more trial experience because you didn't get trials in the civil arena all that much. But it certainly made it possible for me to get a position that but for the Fred Hampton killing and then the change in the political election of Bernard Carey as a Republican, I never would have gotten. It was the time where, you know, Mike Royko wrote that book, We Don't Want Nobody That Nobody Sent. <laughs> I would have been a nobody that nobody sent. <laughs> well, uh, you did mention academics, uh, and I did want to talk to you about your book and uh, privilege issues. So I'm curious as to, you know, what started your interest in writing about privilege issues specifically? Well, I was very active in the litigation section from its beginnings, from its inception. I think I went to the second annual meeting in Washington, which was still done on a NIDA model. And a man by the name of Philip Corboy, who was a very well-known personal injury lawyer in Chicago, very well-known, very successful, was the chairman of the litigation section. And he named me to the trial evidence committee as chair which was also unusual. I think it must have been in 1979. And we would put on annual meetings. And one of the topics that suddenly emerged was attorney-client privilege. And I told the people with me who were working on the subject, you know, let's, they always do handout material and it's always worthless and people always throw it away. Let's do something that really would be a keeper. So we did a big white notebook with all sorts of cases in it and all sorts of writing about it. So that was the beginning. I think it was in 1979 or 1980 at the latest. And then the litigation section asked if we would upgrade it and have it published. And that's how it started. I think it's in its sixth edition by now. And it's grown from about 100 pages to two big volumes. And it's grown every bit as much as the privilege has grown through adjudication through really kind of an example of the common law development. I think intellectually, one of the reasons that it's so interesting is that if you want to see how the common law develops, I can't think of a subject matter that shows it more clearly than the development of attorney-client privilege 
in the United States since about 1980, I would say, to the present. Well, let's talk about uh, some of those developments um, over the years that you've been in practice and thinking and writing about these subjects. What do you find to be sort of the most interesting developments on privilege issues? I don't know whether the subject matter is as interesting as the sheer explosion of it. When we started, maybe there were 100 cases reported in the entire United States on privilege. Today, you'll get that in a month. So volume alone has become enormous. There were very few issues that arose, and now it's, it proliferates. I mean, the law develops with, oh, here's an interesting case. How does it fit into the theory? And then the theory adjusts. So you have the outlines of the privilege, and then you suddenly get waivers of the privilege. So the whole concept of waiver becomes as enormous as the privilege itself. So that kind of development that the law inevitably goes into when it's not statutory construction is the thing that I have found very, very interesting. Well, and not only has the issues and cases exploded, but also kind of the the increase of the information that we're going through in discovery obviously has uh, skyrocketed as well. Right. You know, there's seems to me, you know, the cost now of doing discovery and protecting the privilege must be astronomical compared to what things were like in the 60s and 70s. I would guess that it is astronomical from the reported cases. You have to keep in mind, though, that there are plenty of cases where the privilege never arises. But in large commercial cases that give rise to all these fights about privilege logs, and now we have fights about whether the privilege log is adequate or not before you even get to the question of whether the documents listed in it are privileged or are not privileged or have been waived. In the large commercial case, I can't imagine that it isn't terrifically costly from the reported cases. You have special masters that often get appointed to adjudicate the privilege because even the magistrate, some of the magistrate judges don't want to be burdened with it. And I can't help but think that it's got to cost companies in the large case, many hundreds of thousands of dollars of attorney time just to find out whether a document is or is not privilege protected, I like to call it. And going through those emails, I'm one of those people that, you know, I, I do a lot of those privilege reviews. And I think uh, it would be far easier if we kind of just, you know, decided just to, to give them all to the other side. Um, can't do that, of course. But I did want to talk to you about sort of the cost-benefit analysis, if you will, of, of, of doing those kinds of reviews. Because obviously, you know, those are extremely costly things for the client. What do you believe can be done to uh, sort of contain those costs associated with protecting the privilege? Well, I've written a short article in the litigation journal, which I called as a tipping of the hat to Jonathan Swift. I called it a modest proposal. A modest proposal that Jonathan Swift wrote was about the Irish starving to death, and he suggested that one of the ways of dealing with the problem was to pickle their young babies and eat them instead. Uh, so I called it a modest proposal, where basically I suggest, particularly in the large cases for sophisticated clients, that you basically turn over all the documents, and instead of fighting as to whether a document is or is not privilege protected, that you fight over whether it is or is not admissible. 
I mean, I can hear the howls of outrage from many quarters at even that suggestion. But I would like to point out that with the clawback agreements that are codified now in Rule 502, A, B, C through D, you can claw back if you've made a mistake and produced a document by mistake. Um, my own sense is that an awful lot of these documents don't matter one way or another if the other side gets to see them, particularly not with all of these email chains where you sort of press a button by mistake and maybe somebody gets to see it, which is considered to be uh, waived because somebody's been shown the document who shouldn't have been shown it. So basically my position would be in these large cases that are so costly to litigate, turn over the documents, get a clawback agreement, get an agreement with the other side, because usually both sides have the same interest to try to make it more rational and then fight about if a given document should or should not be privileged, protected when it comes to you want to introduce it or not. So that's my modest proposal. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure uh, there are plenty of uh, members of the audience who are uh, uh, upset right now. Yeah. So let's talk about about your proposal because I think that you know cost is something that you know clients you know rightfully get upset about and I think you're right in a lot of these big cases you know there are tons of emails and and most of them have no meaning to anybody um, and certainly uh, the other side doesn't care and certainly it's not going to affect what you know your client but you know you're you're worried about waivers so. You know, what do you do about the waiver issue, particularly when there's in some states or subject matter waiver where, you know, if you turn over, you know, a document and every other document relating to that subject matter is waived. So what, what would you do? What is your proposal to deal with that? Well, you could get, I would think, more protection if you have your private clawback agreements blessed by the court. If the court enters an order okaying your private agreement, I would think you would have a lot more protection. I would also come back to the question of so what? A lot of it depends on the type of case you're dealing with. I could see where maybe in patent litigation, it would really matter if you expose confidential information to third parties, but a lot of these cases, it has no operational effect on the client's undergoing business, no matter who sees it. And courts are perfectly capable of doing protective orders if they think they are justified. So I, I think it's something that would be worthy of exploring. It's also something where it would give the client, after all, it's the client's privilege. You could sit down with the client and say, look, it's gonna cost us whatever, $100,000, $200,000 to go through all these documents for privilege. Are you willing to take the risk of doing it the other way? And if you're dealing with a sophisticated client, they ought to be able to make their own decision on that. So that would be the cost benefit to them. They might think it's worth it. They might well say, what do I care? Let them wade through that paperwork instead of letting my lawyers wade through it. I certainly, you know, would agree that it's not something I don't think lawyers do enough of, which is sort of communicate upfront what the costs, you know, might be in terms of doing a privilege uh, review and and what the benefit is and and what 
perhaps there may not be a reason to do such a review and to produce the documents if, if the cost is going to be too much. Why don't we do that as lawyers, Edna? Why don't we you know, present our, our clients with those sorts of options? Is it just fear? Is it, you know, because you know, you're right. I mean, a, a lot of clients are, are very sophisticated. They know what's going on. Why don't we give those sorts of options on a regular basis? I think lawyers are by nature extremely conservative. And to put a polite cast on it, not to say hi, bum. I think lawyers, maybe everybody, is just used to doing things the way they're done. It's safer. Nobody can fault you for doing something the way it's always been done. If you suddenly try to do it a different way, even with the permission of the client, well, you know, you're on shakier ground emotionally, maybe also professionally. And I think it's that lawyers are hidebound. I can't think of many cases I was involved in, even with the fancy financial frauds where attorney-client privilege was really an issue one way or the other. Are you involved in many cases where the actual document has any significance to the underlying case? Uh, not many, although I am actually involved in a case actually right now where an issue is conduct and discovery. Yeah. I'll put it that way. And so we're lawyers that came in after another law firm stepped away. And so one of the questions in, in the case is, well, what happened during the other uh, law firm's representation, whether there was discovery conduct that you know would look bad for you know one of the parties. But that's, you know, again, one of the very rare instances where, privilege issues actually matter to a case because um, if some of those documents were turned over, it might cause a problem for one of the parties. Um, right. And so that's one of the issues, but one of the very rare circumstances. Very rare. I mean, I, I really can't think of many cases I was involved in where it made any difference at all. Absolutely. So I'm interested in sort of, I, I know that you, you know, made the transition from uh, Sidley Austin to uh, your own firm. And so, well, let me ask you maybe to back up. How many lawyers did you have your firm? Were you just a solo or did you have associates or how did that work? Where to begin? I think it was one of the hardest things I ever did in my life. It happened at the right time. I was 50 and my youngest child had gone off to college. I think it would have been impossible to do had I still had family at home. Uh, there were many nights that I was at the office till midnight over and over again, working harder than most young associates ever do. It's also at a time when technology was changing so fast. It was just at the time that computers were really beginning to be used a lot. So that it meant that I didn't have to have very rapidly the kind of full-time secretarial help. It also it involved being able to change what one was doing on a dime. It meant being able to say, that's not working, whether that was the employees I was hiring, whether that was the way I was doing billing, any of it. It was the capacity to say, assess quickly, that's not working, have to figure out a way to make it work economically. Lawyers often don't have to think about things economically. The firm does worry about getting clients. It was the only time when I really had to worry about my costs, getting the clients, keeping the work, and doing the work. So it was very, very taxing, very exciting, 
and I'm very glad I did it, but it's not easy. Yes, I had associates, but I, I very quickly developed a situation where I was working with people much more on an ad hoc basis. So that if it didn't work out in terms of temperament, in terms of style working, it was not a permanent marriage that you had to undo. And I found that very, very effective. And in the long run, I did find particularly one person, uh, she and I worked beautifully together. We were temperamentally suited and she loved the detailed paperwork, but hated to go to court. We were a marriage made in heaven. We really could handle very complex litigation together and do it very economically and very successfully and very well. I also found with secretaries, for instance, <laughs> I went through them. Some were good, some were bad, some were bored because it was too small an environment. Some felt, oh, great, I'm an administrator now, so I can buy a lot of equipped stuff. Makes me feel important to do so. I think I still have paper clips that that particular secretary bought. Then I thought, well, you know, that's not going to work in the long run. So I had the idea of hiring instead law students in their third year. And I started with the U of C. Uh, they had a lot of more time on their hands. They also wanted to have more hands-on experience themselves. And it worked beautifully. I got excellent, excellent young people who enjoyed what they were doing hugely. They were not really secretarial. They were law clerks. They would go to court and file papers. They learned all of the ins and outs of that. And they would hire their replacements for me. So it just, you know, the ability to say the traditional secretarial thing's not working at all and change, or the traditional lots of associates isn't working well because it's so expensive and change. Figure out, well, what will work? Exciting. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds amazing. And I've always been very impressed by solo practitioners or very small law firms that are able to sort of take on uh, the really big cases and go up against, you know, the, the large law firms like the Sidleys, right? And so what tips do you have for, you know, people who are, you know, starting out at those, you know, smaller firms or wanting to found their own firms that, you know, that you can, you know, do that sort of sophisticated litigation uh, without having those, you know, big firm resources? Well, I think you need to have the training of that big firm or the training of a very good plaintiff's firm. Because it's very hard to do, I think, uh, defense work in a smaller environment, boutique type of environment. I realize that a lot of the big companies and general counsel, what they're really looking to buy is not legal advice. It's rear protection. <laughs> Covering their CYA, right? I took a case with me against a major pharmaceutical company from Sidley. And it was a whistleblower case. We were defending the, I was defending the major, for Sidley was than I was, defending the major pharmaceutical company. And after initial discovery and all, I said to the general counsel, you're gonna have a problem with this case. I know you think, the company thinks they fired this person legitimately and that it had nothing to do with having let the feds know that she thought there were problems, but it's not going to be an easy one for you. And I can settle it. And I think at that time it was for something like $200,000. Uh, 
Well, the general counsel panicked. He ended up firing me and going to a larger firm that specialized in that kind of defense work. Well, you know the end of the story. Four years later, millions of dollars in fees, they settled it for four or five times what I could have settled it earlier. But the general counsel was very content because he got what he really was needed to buy, which was get his own rear covered when the settlement went through so that the business wouldn't be saying, what, you're taking the suggestion or the advice of a small solo practitioner that we settle this case now for $200,000? We'd rather play a million four years later. Well, it made me a little bit cynical about the motivation of um, a lot of um, a lot of companies, which brings us back to why they spend so much money sometimes on the discovery, because that's not really what they care about. It's not their money. That's interesting. So, how do you get around that sort of attitude? Because I mean, you were Cook County prosecutor. You were, you know, at, at you know one of the largest law firms in the country, and still. You know, going out on your own, you had some cachet, some a lot of experience, a lot of training. But obviously, you found uh, your niche and and clients that that wanted to uh, to back you and get your advice. Yeah, it was great. I'm some ways sorry I didn't do it earlier. Excellent. Well, I think that's all the time uh, that we have today. Edna, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. Uh, it's really been a pleasure uh, thinking about history and the privilege and, and how we can control those costs. So I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, Dave. It was pleasant talking to you. Thank you very much. If people are interested in purchasing the Attorney-Client Privilege and the Work Product Doctrine Treatise, folks can go to ambar.org litigation and click on the Publications tab where you can find information on the books sold by the section. Don't forget that members of the litigation section save 20% on section-published books, which of course includes Edna Epstein's Treatise. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. So let's welcome back Daryl Wilson to the show. Daryl is an in-house litigator managing global litigation and investigations at Tyson's Foods. It's great to see you again, Daryl. Let's talk about privilege issues. Great to see you as well, Dave, and I'm glad to be here. Or I guess I should say I'm happy to have the privilege of being here today to talk about the attorney-client privilege as well as the privilege log. So what we have here today is just basically an introduction on the attorney-client privilege and what exactly is the privilege and how to apply the privilege. So the attorney-client privilege protects you and your client from the disclosure of substance communications that were made in confidence by a client to his attorney for the purpose of obtaining legal advice. The attorney's communication with the client is also protected, provided the communication contains confidential information disclosed by the client or legal advice from the attorney. There are four elements that you really should include that relates to the attorney-client privilege, and that is a communication that's made between privileged persons in confidence for the purpose of seeking, obtaining, or providing legal assistance to the client. In addition to these elements, the privilege must be affirmatively raised and not waived. One thing that's important to note here also that if you're going to assert the privilege, that the burden of proof is on the plaintiff to prove that the privilege exists. So for the attorney-client privilege to attach, there must be some form of communication. The communication can be oral or written, 
And the attorney-client privilege protects only the communication and not the information that is communicated. So what that means is it's important to note that while you may transmit an email or whatever to your attorney, or you may actually have a verbal communication via conversation, the information or the facts that surround what that communication is about can be discoverable and can be admissible into the court. So if the other side compels an information to know exactly what it is that you talked about, while the communication portion is confidential and subject to the privilege, you may have to provide some of those facts centering around what that communication was and how it existed. So While the beneficiary of legal services is automatically considered a client when an agreement is signed by the parties, the privilege also protects initial consultations when conducted with possible representation in mind. So what that means is often we may see that the client who's the person that assigned a retainer agreement says that, hey, I have privilege here. But also, according to some of the model rules of the professional conduct and also some case law, the attorney-client privilege may exist and extend to potential clients. So these are people who may not have signed up with you already as a client, but if they come to you having a communication and they're possibly seeking some type of legal advice from you, then it's potential or possible that that potential advice that you give to that non-client may be subject to the attorney-client privilege if that person reasonably relies on the advice that you provided to them as a non-client and they go and they kind of use that advice that's provided by you. So if the non-client is considered a prospective client, then the attorney-client privilege will extend to the prospective client. So when you have that discussion with your attorney or if you're working through a case and it happens that through discovery, the opposing side asks you to provide some information that may be either via the interrogatories or the request for production of documents. Most often, you will need to provide a privilege log that will show exactly what it is that you are trying to withhold, whether it be from the attorney-client privilege, a work doctrine product that is prepared in anticipation for litigation, or other potential privileges that you may try to assert in order to not turn over the documents. So a privilege log is a document that describes documents or other items that are withheld from production in a civil lawsuit under claim that the documents are privileged from disclosure due to attorney-client privilege, work product doctrine, a joint defense doctrine, or some other privilege. The privilege log is governed by the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, Rule 26B5A, and the requirements for preparing a sufficient privilege log are well known. The parties must identify the date of the communication, the parties to the communication, including their names and corporate positions, the names of the attorneys who were parties to the communication, and the subject matter of the communication sufficient to show why the privilege applies. The description of the document needs to contain sufficient facts to demonstrate why that document is privileged. So if you are held into the court based off of whether or not your privilege log or the documents that you're withholding are sufficient, this is where the log is important because it would allow the judge to determine what information has been withheld and why it's been withheld. And if your privilege log has these particular items in there, then it can be upheld and you can be able to withhold those documents pursuant to any type of privilege that you may assert. So what I want to offer are a few drafting tips to our lawyers when you're getting ready to prepare a privilege log to ensure that that privilege log is pretty sealed tight to be able to withhold the documents. You want to identify the fields that are needed for a sufficient privilege log, which includes the type of documents, the date that the document was sent, the sender 
and the recipients of that particular document or communication, the type of privilege that is being asserted, and a description of that document. You also want to keep what we call is a record of the players that are on the communication. So based off the players, you want to be able to provide their name and their title if they are not a lawyer or if they're part of your client and they're with a corporation. You want to be able to provide the title of that individual so they can know who's involved in the communication and you can have what we like to call a players list. You want to identify the privilege that's asserted, whether that be the attorney-client privilege, the work doctrine. And when you have that work doctrine, you want to say that the information that was relayed or the document that was provided was prepared in anticipation for litigation. And you want to be sure to review each document to avoid senselessly including a document that truly is not privileged. Doing so may destroy the credibility of your privilege log and potentially could destroy the credibility of the lawyer that is providing that privilege log because you want to make sure that you're not just adding documents just to add documents to a privilege log so that you can withhold them. You want to have a true sound reason as to why this document is being withheld from production. And Dave, I appreciate it. And those have been my tips today on attorney-client privilege and the privilege log. Wonderful tips, Daryl. You certainly didn't withhold anything from our audience today. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, I appreciate it. And that's our episode for today. I want to thank especially on the show Michelle Oberts and Scott Lewis, who are on staff with the litigation section and help me with guest preparation and booking. The show is, of course, fabulously produced by Rich Rivera. Thank you so much, Rich. And my gratitude goes out to the co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and our audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.